0: Thank you so much, Dan. Take your Bibles and let's let's go to the Book of Revelation. The seasons of the life of God's people until Christ returns are always the same. Doesn't mean that the circumstances are the same, but our need is universal. Our need is singular and it's always the same, whether we've been in a season of freedom to worship as we have been in our culture and our country, or whether somewhere on the globe a believer is languishing in some dark prison, having been beaten daily because of their faith in Christ, or whether you're a believer who's been on the run in some foreign culture because of the hatred of the gospel, or whether you have been in a place Where the fruitfulness of ministry has been allowed by God to flourish. All across the globe, the Christian's need is universal. We need to know our Savior. We need to understand His place in our lives. I love the new hymnology that that puts the refrain in the chorus All I have is Christ. We need that. Whether you're a believer in the 21st century sitting in the auditorium of Grace Emmanuel Bible Church or an old patriarch and last living apostle imprisoned on some island in exile, we need the same thing. We need what the Lord, in His kindness, gave to John on that day. We need to see the matchless splendor and intimate watch care of our risen King. You remember last time we were looking at verses 4 through 8 and we saw that we were greeted by the Godhead, greeted by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we were told of the Lord's transcendence and, and His uh, otherness and we were told of his imminence and nearness to his people we were greeted by the spirit who himself is perfect and omnipotent and all powerful and we were greeted by the son who it is described it is described rather as faithful and majestic and coming in the clouds and the first and the last the alpha and omega the almighty we saw last time that he's god's faithful witness he is always the faithful witness he's always faithful and true as chapter 3 verse 14 says he's always the true and righteous one who judges and wages war faithfully for righteousness Revelation nineteen eleven. and he's God's firstborn that is to say he's the firstborn from the dead and that gives him preeminence among all who will eventually be raised from the dead He's the firstborn from the dead, therefore he is the prototokos, he's the preeminent one. He's the one who conquered death and therefore all whom he raises follow after him and he is their Lord and master. We also saw that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. All through the book of Revelation you have these earthly kingdoms coming and going and rising and falling and you have them all in their arrogance imagining that they can amass some sort of military or political or even dominant powerful front with their magic arts against the king of kings himself. And yet he is self-described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's God's forever ruler. The Bible just makes it so plain. When they're waging war in Revelation 17 verse 14, they wage war against the Lamb and the simple phrase is, and the Lamb will overcome them. There it is. They wage war against the Lamb. Can you imagine the money and the finance and the military campaign and the tooling and retooling and the armed forces and the soldiers, all of them amassing at the battle of Armageddon against the Lamb and it just simply says, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, they're the called and the chosen and faithful. And so it's no wonder that in verse 5, there was praise for the Godhead to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. What love and mercy was extolled in praise. And then in verse 6, it talked about our place and our privilege he's made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and father we serve a living God as those who bow down in service who those who are empowered for service those who are commissioned by God in service those who accomplish eternal things every day you get up as a believer the words that you speak have the potential to have eternal value and accomplish eternal things because you've been made part of the kingdom of priests to serve our God. The promise was that He is coming. Verse 7. And the promise was that all will see Him. This is a reiteration of what the prophet Daniel said in Daniel 7.13. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see. Jews will be astonished, those who have pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will, will be in shock and utter mourning. Not only were they wrong, not only is the judge here, not only can they not escape it, but those who rejected Him will know that the one who was pierced rose from the dead. In every tribe, all nations, all generations, it is decreed to be. So we come to this Opening vision that we so desperately need in verses 9 to 20. Follow along as I read. I, John, your brother, the fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The Gospels, of course, tell us that the disciples met our risen Savior on a hillside in Galilee. During that final time together, Jesus told them to take the truth of the Gospel to every corner of the world and to make disciples after the truth of the gospel as they're brought to Christ and as they believe Him they will love Christ and along with you will live by His every word and you know from the gospels that He appointed those men as His emissaries His apostles of His church they would preach Christ they would write every word for the spiritual food of His people in the new covenant work they were to lead the church's mission to take the gospel to the world And they had in their hearts and minds the promise of the Holy Spirit, which would be Christ in them, which would be another helper, just like Christ. So the presence of Christ in them and with them and among them. And that would happen, he said, just a few short weeks after his return to the throne in heaven. And he promised to be with his people always to the end of the age, forever. He would always be with his people. And as Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ then ascended into the clouds. We've studied this before. And two angelic beings were there and they comforted them with the absolute promise that He will come back. And they said He will come back in just the same way as they'd seen Him go into heaven. And you know what happened? The Spirit did come and He anointed the work. The apostles had been anointed and they were given extraordinary and explicable power so that believers would know with certainty that they were the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ and that they were His messengers and in those early days, it was just absolutely gospel ministry on steroids. It was thousands of souls believing in Christ and, and rushing upon their cities, their native cities. Local assemblies of worshipers were learning Christ's commands. It was a buzz with gospel truth and transformed lives. They were helping each other grow in faith. They were testifying to the world of the forgiveness that they had received in Christ, this Savior who had died and rose from the dead. And then the trouble began because there was no way that in the early days of the church with so much gospel grace, there was no way for the forces of evil and unbelief and evil cultures to stand idly by. And so it wasn't long, history records, before Stephen was stoned to death after he'd given witness to the Sanhedrin. What a grace from the Lord to have this courageous man, Stephen, giving witness before the the Jewish authorities even after they had murdered their Messiah even after God had saved many of them on that first day when Peter preached there were still many who were self-righteous and would not accept Jesus as the Messiah and God still gave a gracious testimony through this man Stephen and yet he was stoned to death Acts 12 indicates that Herod Agrippa killed James, the brother of John. Eusebius would later add to the story that bishop, the, the bishop of Alexandria, Clement, around circa 215, he was Origen's mentor, and he had added that the person who led James to the judgment seat was so moved when he saw James bear witness and he confessed himself also to be a Christian. God was still saving And the murder of James led to the departure of the rest of the twelve from Jerusalem and the gospel was suddenly in apostolic witness being spread. You know from history that the first statewide persecution of Christians was under Nero in 64 and reported by Tacitus and Suetonius, both of them affirming that Christians all over the place were being murdered. And, And although persecution was often local and, and people being chased down, and so there were sporadic violent moments. From that point forward, Christians could be arrested, would be arrested and killed for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And many of them, dozens, perhaps hundreds, and in some places thousands, were already being slaughtered. Paul himself recounts the suffering that he endured. It included his own being whipped and beaten and stoned and and left for dead and shipwrecked and near starvation. He was always in danger from his own countrymen and even from the Gentile world, 2 Corinthians 6. Jewish leaders would often threaten those who led the church and new believers in a city and In Acts 4.20, after being threatened by religious leaders, but speaking for all the apostles, Peter and John said, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. The apostles, of course, were thrown in prison and beaten for their faith, but they, Acts 5 said, continued to preach. Peter's own martyrdom was foretold by Jesus in John 21, and it was written about, 30 years after Peter was martyred. There might even be less precise evidence of the deaths of the rest of the original 11 plus Matthias, but they were certainly heavily persecuted, slandered. They were legally threatened quite often and chased down and imprisoned and likely lost their lives due to, to the persecution and because of their bold preaching and their widespread influence, probably had their head severed from their body or stoned. People throughout church history have said that the, the lack of evidence of the martyrdoms, the precise evidence, uh, simply tells us that we have no proof. Well, it's true. We don't have a ton of evidence for all the apostles for sure, but it seems, it seems to me that if the 60 years between Christ's ascension and the revelation of this last living apostle, if, if those... Years were literally splattered with the blood of thousands of ordinary saints dying for their unflinching belief in Christ, then it's a bit hard to swallow when someone says that the leaders of this movement probably weren't captured and killed. That would be highly improbable. They no doubt were captured by the authorities and somehow lost their lives. Even with the book of Hebrews being written around the late 60s, by then the writer records what seems to be both Old and New Testament era martyrdoms. Just listen Hebrews 11:35 to 38. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Parentheses. Men of whom the world was not worthy. End parentheses) Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Perhaps 60 years after Christ ascended, John is on the island of Patmos. Maybe that indicates more civilized days had begun to prevail. But Christianity was already hated and considered dangerous. And to make matters worse and more discouraging, five of the most well-known and faithful churches in Asia Minor had already begun to compromise and to buckle in the the hostility against Christianity. The reason this revelation at the beginning, before the letters are actually spoken to the churches the reason this revelation of the Lord Himself is given to us is to comfort us and to challenge us about faithfulness and to demonstrate that He is sovereign in His church and we can't be the kind of ministry where false teachers are being tolerated as one of these churches was doing we can't tolerate immoral lifestyles as another church was tolerating We can't be proud and busy in the activities of ministry but showing no love for Christ or one another as one church was experiencing. Another church showed no conviction at all. They were really rather, as I said a few weeks ago, vanilla on every matter of truth. One church, known for for its influential reputation, was, was just all show and no substance. You have a name that you're alive but you're dead, he told Sardis. They're just going through the motions. Listen, beloved, by the time this revelation comes, God's people needed an exclamation point on the mission mandate. And then that would serve to be an exclamation point for all of us. A comfort and a warning. We need to have our hearts and imaginations captivated by a vision of the matchlessness of the splendor of Christ. We can sing all we want. All I have is Christ. But if you don't know who He is and what He does in His church, you're not going to stand as faithfully as you could and should. Man, He knows His people intimately. And He's promised to be with us always to the end of the age. And He is with us. And He sent His Spirit to dwell within each one of us and to renew our minds and give us strong faith and to make us clean on the inside and and holy on the outside in our conduct. And he knew that by the time his beloved last living apostle, John himself, would be leaving the earth soon. And this exclamation point was so needed for the church. And so, a little over six decades after Christ's resurrection, In the year 96 A.D., on a Sunday, no less, this is what John sees. And it is absolutely too much to take in. It is so fundamental to our mission. It's so fundamental to our everyday life. What you have here is the majestic splendor of the king as he calls his servant to write and as he describes who he is. As he gives John a vision for all of God's people. The revelation of the Lord in his church to his church. Number one the king's servant is called to write. The king's servant, John, is called to write. Notice he's called to write while in prison. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus. What a mouthful was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this is our brother and fellow partaker. When you get to heaven, you will meet John. I will meet John. And he's writing to the churches, the seven in Asia Minor, and they are representative of God's people who need this exclamation point. And that comes all the way down to you and me right now today. We are brothers and sisters and fellow partakers in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance of Jesus. This is the same John. The John you remember who reclined at the table with Jesus closest to Jesus' chest. Who always delighted in telling us that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not as if Jesus didn't love the others, but this was one that Jesus discipled in a special way. This is the same John who outran Peter to the tomb fast. It's also the same John who didn't have to go in before he believed Peter had to go in and get all confused and wonder. and Not John. At every moment he saw Jesus, there was no indication that he was ever a doubting Thomas, ever a wavering Peter. He certainly had pride, no doubt, as a son of thunder, wanting to call down fire on people all the time in his younger ministry life. But here he is, the old man, And he says, oh, I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus. And that's no surprise. Jesus had said it. Matthew 24, verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. John wasn't surprised at this to be a fellow partaker in these things when the first missionary journey was done and they came back and reported, Acts 14, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom. Sometimes people imagine, oh, I just want a Christian life that's just easy. Why can't it be easy? You'll have eternity ruled by the Lord and no sin. But the Lord of His church is with you here and now, even as a fellow partaker of the tribulation and suffering no surprise I love 1 Thessalonians 3 2 and 3 we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions there it is I sent Timothy to exhort you so you're not moved by the afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this destined for it I love what one commentator said make no mistake about it your best life is not now Your best life, Jim Hamilton says, will begin when the skies are split by the shout of the archangel. That's when your best life comes. When you patiently endure whatever afflictions you face in your life, you follow in the footsteps of the Old Testament prophets, the Lord Jesus, and his disciples. End quote. That's right. Just like John. Exiled to a small island called Patmos off the coast of modern Turkey. Suffering because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What a thing to say. He didn't suffer for being a wrongdoer. He didn't suffer for... for you know, being a man with no character. He, did, he didn't suffer because he, he tried to pay off somebody to stay out of prison and stay out of affliction and suddenly that somebody turned coated and sent him to prison betraying him. No, he suffered for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And that word would go out to the churches. Can you imagine the encouragement already? John is exiled to Patmos. Why? Because he stood strong. He stood on the word of God, spoke the word of God and the testimony of Jesus in his life is what put him in prison. Wow. Look, when you have a family member or a family that rejects you and you say to your Christian friends, my family has outright rejected me, don't have a self-pity party. Rejoice in the encouragement you are passing to the person you're telling the story to because having been rejected you are an encouragement to them that you were rejected because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What an encouragement that is. So the king's servant is called to write while in prison, and he's called to write everything the Spirit reveals. Notice verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now that's a very interesting thing because we must understand this is not some closed eye experience where your your imagination swirls around some murky images that you later recall with even less clarity. That's not this. John was in the spirit in that into his mind came very real images vividly seen and vividly experienced all around him. It was a special unique moment. Every, even other senses besides his eyes and his mind were engaged because he says I heard behind me a loud voice. That's interesting. It's probably a bit different than some of the vivid dreams of the patriarchs. This this same vivid, multi-sensory, and remarkably memorable experience occurred only a few other times that we know of in Scripture. The Spirit literally entered Ezekiel and set him on his feet while his vision was happening, Ezekiel 2. Wow, Spirit entered his mind and set him on his feet physically. Peter, as you know, on the rooftop in Acts chapter 10, fell into a trance and saw a threefold vision, and he heard the Lord's voice, after which this great sheet with food on it went back up into the sky, Acts 10 verse 9 and following. And though he was hesitant to say anything, the apostle Paul also was, he says, caught up into the third heaven, and it was so virtually real that he couldn't explain whether he'd physically gone there or just that his inner person had left his body to go there. What you have are special moments where God takes a person and somehow captivates their mind and their imagination and their sense, their senses, and puts them into an experience. And John says that this happened on the Lord's Day. (laughs) I love that. The earliest disciples You know this because we've talked about it, but both Jew and Gentile began meeting for ministry on the first day of the week, Sunday. Why did they do that? Because it was the time that Jesus rose from the dead. We are two Sundays away from a great celebration of the resurrection. But that's just one Sunday a year. We still, think about that, 2,000 plus years of church history, and on the first day of the week, we still meet. Why? The resurrection. And I've thought, when did the vision happen to John on the Lord's Day? Did it come after he'd been singing maybe the hymn that he and the disciples were singing right at the end of the Passover meal and just before Jesus was arrested in the garden? So says Matthew 26. Could it have been that hymn? Or maybe the vision came to him. This is just my imagination and the way it works. Maybe the vision came to him when he was reading a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans written some 30 years earlier. I like to think that maybe on the island John had some old fragments of the book of Daniel. That would be huge because the imagery here is drawn from chapter 7 and chapter 10 of Daniel's prophecy and maybe while he was reading some of those fragments or remembering some of those fragments this vision happened. So as the last living apostle is almost off the scene, Sunday was being, still being called the Lord's Day, all the churches, especially these seven churches throughout Asia Minor, and he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So in the vision, John hears a voice behind him, so he's immersed in the experience spatially. And he heard what sounded like a blaring trumpet. There's no reason to get all in an interpretive confusion about things like this, all throughout this revelation, trumpet blasts signal things. <laughs> and what they signal are, are, are always profound things and massively altering things. The most dramatic events the earth will ever experience as Christ returns in glory and judgment are always signaled by trumpet blasts all throughout this Revelation. And so you can imagine John hears a voice behind him that sounds like a trumpet blast and it arrests his mind and captures his full attention. Listen, there are all kinds of places through the book of Revelation where when God is about to speak or God is about to move or something's about to fall or a judgment's about to come, Everything becomes sort of this low rumbling, it seems, through the book of Revelation. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 20, when it says, after he chides God's people for their idolatry, but the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silent before him. Don't you read over this moment when John hears a voice behind him like the sound of a trumpet and imagine that he didn't suddenly become arrested. And the king's servant is called to write not only while in prison and write what the Spirit says, but notice, he's to write it for all the churches in Christ. Verse 11, write in a book what you see And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Write what you see. And the obedience was automatic. It was immediate. Because when God says write, you write when God says walk, you walk when God says praise, you praise when God says submit, you submit you don't need a vision you, you have the voice of God in his word I love the straightforward aspect of this write it and John wrote he always wasn't worried about how he felt, was he? He wasn't worried about whether it was reasonable. He wasn't even worried about whether it made sense. He wasn't distracted by the sense that he's in some experiential vision, some virtual reality. He he doesn't worry about all that. He doesn't want to know the details. He doesn't doesn't get all concerned with his own self-awareness in the dynamic. All he's concerned about is the voice that is speaking to him and when the voice says, right. He is on full alert. His imagination captivated and his will engaged and you know just as a footnote that is such a great way to look at your own exposure to the word of God does it arrest you captivate your imagination and engage your will or do you have to sit around and wait for everything to make sense I love this And boy, John saw some amazing things. But right at the beginning of this stunning vision is the most consoling and and uplifting and faith invigorating and gospel empowering revelation of the splendor of our Lord that the church would ever be privileged to read. And it is comprehensive and it is inexhaustible and to, to plumb its riches and its depths have of course been the occupation of every teacher and ministry since it poured forth from the vision. This is the matchless splendor of the risen King of glory Himself and it is for His people and it is an exclamation point for our encouragement and our caution, our consolation and our obedience. so the king's servant is called to write secondly the king's presence with his people is revealed the king's presence with his people is revealed notice verse 12 then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. In this description or in this section which begins to unfold this description, there are several images which literally are drawn from what the prophets of the Old Testament declared centuries earlier. And each of these images introduces a theme that gets carried all the way through, literally, the book of Revelation. Each of these images of John's vision speaks of this splendor of the king and it speaks of every aspect of what we're to know about him in the midst of his people. That he is absolute in his power. He is absolute in his authority. He is righteous in his purity. He is perfect in his exalted glory as the risen king. We are to know that the Lord of his church is... Is alive and in the midst of his church and this is a vision of his lordship the first thing we see really is is his intimate care his intimate care it says that John saw the seven golden lampstands what are they well verse 20 the lampstands are the seven churches so Jesus the Lord of glory, this great vision of the risen Christ shows that he is in the midst of the lampstands. He's in the midst of his people. You remember lampstands, if you remember our study last time, was the imagery drawn from Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 4. You had the two olive branches and then you have the lampstands You have this great image of God's people and the temple and the place where God dwells and the light of it and God's unique relationship of intimacy with His people as His presence dwells in their midst. That's what you have as John in this vision sees all of that pulled into this context. It is the idea of what God had promised in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 which is repeated in Hebrews 13 I will never leave you nor forsake you I am in the midst of my people he's in the midst of his church he's in the midst of the universal global work of his people that is invisible and he's in the midst of every local assembly where believers walk and praise and Worship and live. It's comforting. On the one hand, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I won't leave you as orphans. I'm with you to the end of the age. He's always with us. It's comforting. They needed that. He'll never leave. His care is intimate. It's close range. He's in the midst of his people. But while it is comforting, it is unsettling because he's in the midst of his people. So not only does he understand our weaknesses, but he also knows every tendency and limitation and weakness and sin. You think there's a corner of your life in ministry at Grace Emmanuel Bible Church that no one knows about? Well, it may be true. You can hide it from human beings, but not from Jesus, the Lord of his church. It's not the buildings that he's bound to. But as worship space, as ministry space, the Lord comes with his people to this gathering just as he is with his people scattered from this place. And when we come corporately, he is in our midst. He's intimately knowing what we're doing in ministry and why we're doing it. He knows whether you prepared or didn't prepare. He knows what your thoughts are when the pastor is preaching. He knows what the pastor's thoughts are as he's preaching the message. He knows what the musicians are thinking as they play their notes. He knows what the care workers are thinking as they take care of infants. He knows what the kitchen staff is having go on in their hearts as they... Work yet another fellowship time. He knows what seminary students are doing in their studies. He knows what you, as a wife, are thinking when it comes to your marriage. He knows what you, young people, are doing when you think that your parents can't see what. You're hiding from them. The Lord Jesus Christ knows. He knows you, men of the church. He knows what you think of your wife and your kids and your home and ministry and your work and your job. It's comforting and unsettling. It's comforting in the sense that He also then knows what will crush my faith. He knows how to preserve my faith. He knows that if I go around that bend, I'm not prepared yet. And so He puts in my life trials and hindrances and providences that keep me from going around that bend until I'm ready He knows what Satan and the world is preparing in order to smash your world into absolute bits and cause you to shake your fist at God and curse God and want to die. He knows that, and so he prepares to care for you intimately through your family and your marriage and your church and your discipleship in order to prepare you so that that will not overtake you. He knows what's ahead for us as a church. In the culture in which we live. And He's preparing us already for that. He has the biggest picture and widest frame of reference. He has the closest scrutiny and all the way down to the intimate moments of our thoughts and intentions. He knows the false teachers that are lurking in the corners of our church life, waiting to steal sheep and become savage wolves that rob them of the gospel. He knows some of you who've professed to believe but but want to apostatize in your hearts because you can't stand the truth deep down. He also knows those of you who have yet rejected the gospel but what it's going to take to draw you. He knows that and he's putting circumstances in place to make sure that you will be called and effectually called and you will repent and believe. He knows that. The first part of the vision here is that the Lord Jesus Christ intimately knows His people and there's never a moment where we are not presided over and ruled over by the Lord Himself who is in the midst of His people. Romans eight twenty seven. he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I can't do for myself according to the will of God what I need to do because I only see the pages of Scripture and I try my best to understand it with my meager mind and I try with my flesh to subdue the flesh while I obey it. But he knows and he searches the heart and he knows the discipleship needed and he knows the sermons needed. You know, we walk around in our life as though we have it figured out. And we rise to our self-sufficiency when this vision was to humble the church. Because two more chapters later, he's going to call these churches to repent of their weakness. He's in the middle of his church. He knows it. He sees it. You can't hide it from him. Grace Emmanuel can't hide it from the Lord of glory. He's in our midst. He knows the people he put in leadership. He knows the people he's taking out of leadership. He knows the people he's putting into a ministry to use their fruitfulness. And he knows the people that he's going to peel away from those ministries. He knows the people that need to leave this place because they have no interest. And he knows the people that he's drawing to this place because he is going to save them and use them. Christ Jesus Romans says, is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. The first thing John sees is that the Lord of glorious splendor is in the midst of the lampstands. Why would he do that? Why would he want to be? I mean, by this time, he's got to warn churches to repent. By this time, they're not honoring him. By this time, even the stronghold of Ephesus is only 35 years old, and it's already lost its first love. Why would he want to be in the midst of his church? Because he loves his bride. He loves his people. Ephesians 5, you know it well, but it says in Ephesians 5, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. He gave Himself for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. That's her salvation and redemption. And that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory. You know, I read those words and I say, Lord, there is no glory in and of ourselves. We are a mess. But all he sees, he sees his redemption. He sees his glory. He sees it being worked out. He's in the midst of his people. He's making us have no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He wants us to be holy and blameless. And so he nourishes and cherishes his church. The Lord wanted all of us in every local assembly to have what these seven churches began to see right at the outset and what John was privileged to experience that the Lord is in the midst of his churches, the lampstands. GIBC has a lampstand. We have a light. I don't want it to be taken away. I don't want it to be put under some cover. I don't want it to be diminished or dimmed. And so the Lord has to care for us I've only seen a small slice of his care in the last 16 years. Others before me saw great care and intimate care of the faithful saints here, even though the church got messy. The comfort. It doesn't just come from knowing our faith is protected. It's a comfort to, to know that the Lord will never let His church become so full of sin that the gospel loses its powerful influence he'll close down a local assembly and start a work somewhere else before he's going to allow believers to go by the wayside. What love. What intimate care. say, how did that happen? Well, you see the humble condescension of this great Lord. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one, verse 13, like a son of man, and he was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is priestly It's royal, of course, but it's priestly. He is both king and he is priest. And he's one like a son of man. This is language from Daniel 7, 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And this is, of course, a reference to the promised Messiah, the God man, who humbled himself by taking on humanity so that, as the second Adam, he could taste death for us and conquer it in order to give us life. This imagery comes from that description by the prophet. It's royal language, it's priestly language. The garments were worn by the dignified rulers as well as the high priests of Israel. That's what you have here. You have a reference really ultimately from the prophets uh, to, to Joshua's priestly work and you have this you know, Zerubbabel type vision from the Old Testament of Zerubbabel as the king of God's people. Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel. All that imagery is pulled into this great vision of Christ who is the Son of Man who's come to serve as our high priest and be our go-between, between us and the Father. And He's the royal king of kings because of it. He's the righteous ruler, a long robe and a golden sash. Daniel 10 has that great description. The first the clothing, then the moving from the linen to the belt of gold, then the hair followed by flaming eyes, the legs of bronze, and the powerful voice. You see the same things here. Daniel 10 verse 5, clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. Look at verse 13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Daniel 7 verse 9, the hair of his head like pure wool. Revelation 1:14, the hairs of his head were white like white wool. Daniel 10, verse 6, his eyes like flaming torches. Verse 14, here, his eyes were like a flame of fire. That same description appears in chapter 2, verse 18. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Daniel 10, verse 6. Notice verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Daniel 10, verse 6, the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. Verse 15, here, his voice is like the roar of many waters. And his face, Daniel ten six says, is like the appearance of lightning. Notice verse 16 here, his face was like the shining sun in full strength. You have here this parallel with this great royal imagery and high priestly imagery. So what you see here is the humble condescension of the Son of Man so that he might rise to his royal priesthood for his people. His intimate watch care is obvious because he's in our midst. How can he be in our midst? Because he condescended to take on human flesh that he might die for us. And then he became then our that royal priesthood after which we are fashioned to serve our God. He's kingly. He's priestly. What a comfort to us. The king's presence with his people revealed. We won't get much further, but I'll introduce this next point to you. The king's purity and his sovereignty revealed. The king's purity and his sovereignty revealed. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool like snow. Daniel 7 verse 9 gives that same imagery. This speaks of righteousness through and through. He's in the midst of his people, and he is pure. He's righteous. That thought alone is humbling. Why would he want to be in our midst? Have you ever had a day without filth? Have you ever had a moment where you went from the heights of thoughts about Christ and a pure life and plunged into the depths of some sinister thing. He's pure, he is righteous, he's never had an unrighteous thought, he's never had a moment, a nano moment of any kind of impurity, he always lived a righteous life, loved his heavenly father, obeyed all of his father's commands, he was pure through and through, though tempted in all points as we are, and yet he wants to be in the midst of his people, because he wants us to be pure and righteous. Does that motivate you? To want to be pure and righteous because the Lord wants to be in your midst. I don't know why the Lord would spend a moment with me any single day. Because you can't seem to get the Word of God in so richly and deeply that it isn't then suddenly plagued by a bunch of garbage from our old flesh and our old nature. motivating to know that he's pure and and in the imagery it's it's exactly what the prophet Daniel saw in some ways and it's what John sees it's just white and he can't describe it any other way except that in the vision his head and his hair were white like wool speaking of the the controlling features of his life and through and through he's pure and it's like snow And his eyes, he says, were like a flame of fire. This is parallel to Daniel 10, verse 6. And this speaks of the comforting and yet unsettling reality that he has ultimate knowledge. As I said before, he is omniscient. Make no mistake, beloved. Daniel four or, or Hebrews four, twelve and thirteen, says that the word of God is sharper than any two edged sword, and it cuts all the way through the, the finest divisions of bone and marrow and all those molecular divisions. Speaking in the in the analogy sense or the metaphorical sense, it goes all the way down to separating thoughts and intentions. How difficult that is in biblical counseling for me as a pastor or anyone else to sit with somebody and separate thoughts from intentions. It is God's word that separates thoughts and intentions. And then verse 13 says, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are open and laid bare. I've told you before that counseling session I had years ago with a young couple. I said, have you been pure? I said, no, we've fallen I said, I know. They said, you know? I said, yeah, you were seen. What? We were seen? Yeah, you were. It's a terrible thing. Someone saw you, and they were so devastated and shocked, and how we can ever live this down? The damage is just too great. And they said, who was it? I said, it was Christ. Christ. And they were relieved. All things are open and laid bare. It's pretty ugly, isn't it? That he wants to be in the midst of his people. He has the power to see all of our defects and he has the power to sustain us in the midst of them and he has the power to judge us but doesn't. He has the power to grow us His eyes are like flaming torches, Daniel the prophet said. It's repeated, as I said, in chapter 2, verse 18, in the letter to Thyatira. They failed to deal with the movement that was led by the wicked Jezebel. So false doctrine and teaching and immorality was spreading in the life of the church at Thyatira, if you can imagine it. Christ comes in the midst of his people, and he says, look, I've seen it. Pastors think they can get away with immorality while standing up and in hypocrisy. Leaders think they can abuse other people. Husbands and wives think they can defy the standards given to them by God for a healthy life and home, marriage. Young people, you think you can hide the weakness, the moral weakness that you have to strengthen? You must strengthen. You must come to Christ and see Him strengthened. You think you can hide it. He sees it. And everything you do is done in His presence. His ultimate watch care, His humble condescension, His royal priesthood, His holy nature, and His piercing clarity are what John sees. Wow. This is the splendor of our kingdom. And he wants to be in the midst of his lampstands. This is absolutely it's the greatest news. He loves his people. He's intimate. Is there anything in your life that you imagine that is somehow missed by the Lord Jesus Christ that you have to fret? Well, we have more to say, but that's for next time. Let's bow. Lord, thank you. Sometimes at the end of a great text like this, we just want to say how sorry we are. We're sorry. We're grieved that while you're in our midst, loving us so intimately, caring for us so patiently, we trade on that grace we don't come back to this vision often enough. We're not comforted by it. We, we don't believe it. it's true that you are in the midst and you never leave even if we're a mess. And that we're covered in your grace and no one can condemn because you have satisfied our need. You have paid the price. All the debt counted against us at the judgment was nailed to your cross and you want to be with your people. But you are pure you are righteous and you want a pure and holy people forgive us for not being what we should be make us what we should be nourish and cherish us because you love your church and bring us to the place where even as we read the warnings to these churches we are sobered these are great churches how could we ever be impervious to the same weaknesses that they experienced when the pure holy eyes of the Lord of splendor himself is in our midst so thank you for this great comfort that this vision brings and yet thank you for putting us on edge spiritual edge and alertness so that we might honor you You're matchless. You're marvelous in our eyes. And may we live like it. Even as we fellowship with the Kellys and think about the work that they do, you have cared for them. You have cared for that place and those churches. But make those churches pure. Bring those churches the leadership that is faithful in a very, very dark culture. And cover with your watch care these great servants whom you have sent out to that place may they guard their hearts may their kids guard their hearts may the testimony of those workers and evangelists in the hospital guard their hearts may they be faithful to church life that is pure because you're in the midst of your people and We want to be submissive as John was submissive when you said right. When you say be holy for I'm holy, Lord give us the strength to strive in all those ways you've just convicted us even in this very hour. We give you the praise though it's mixed and often sub-biblical. We give you the praise a meager worship and ask you to be pleased with what we offer build us up in your purity and your righteousness that we might hunger for it rightly. We pray this in your splendor and in your glory and for your namesake. Amen. All right. Well, I believe it is fellowship time and um, it's